0: Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, 2 Samuel chapter 23, as our children are leaving this morning. It's always fun to see the kids leave. It's even more fun to see the children's workers look at me saying, how long is he going to preach this morning? Because the kids are getting ready. So I promise I won't go long this morning. I'll go as long as the Holy Spirit has for me this morning. Many of you have been fascinated by the 2016 Republican presidential primary race for President, And in each of the candidates, and again, I'm not here to endorse a political candidate. I'm not here to do anything political. It's just interesting to watch this unfold before our eyes because each candidate is trying to position themselves as the best candidate who will be the greatest leader America has ever seen. And if you're Donald Trump, he's going to make your head spin. It's going to be so awesome what he's going to do to change this world. And so Donald Trump says, listen, the clowns in Washington, they're stupid. I'm going to be a better leader than those clowns in Washington. Then you have Carly Fiorina. She's, she says, you know, I, I'm in touch with the, the real people out there. I've, I've done a successful job at running this company. I will be the greatest leader America has ever seen. And then you've got Ben Carson who says, listen, I'm not a politician. I'm a brain surgeon. I will be the best leader America has ever seen. And then Marco Rubio says, I will be the best leader America has ever seen. Jeb Bush I will be the best leader America has ever seen. What presidential candidate is not going to stand up on a, a, a Republican debate or on a stump speech or on an interview say, I'm not the best leader that's going to come down the pike? No, no, no presidential candidate's going to stand up and say, you know what, I think somebody else is actually better. But here's the problem. Regardless of who gets to be our next president of the United States, whoever that is, they will never be the greatest leader Ever. Because they're going to make mistakes. They are going to fail. They're going to let people down. They will not live up to 100% of the promises they made to their constituents while on the campaign trail. They just won't be able to do it. It's the nature of politics to have gridlock and sin at the highest levels. And it brings up a very interesting question. Can you actually trust leaders at the highest level? Is there such a thing as a perfect leader? And the answer is no. Last week, we left off with David in exile and Absalom, his son, rising up to conspire to take over the throne. And if you remember, Hushai, David's best friend, was the spy sent in to frustrate the plans, and so David was able to escape. And what I shared last week about Absalom, do you guys remember what I said about Absalom? He had what? Rock star hair. He was this dude that had this long flowing hair. He used to cut his hair every year and weigh it. Well, his hair was his downfall. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 18, do you know how Absalom dies? He's riding on his donkey, and his hair gets caught in a thicket, and he just hangs there suspended, vulnerable because his hair got caught, and Joab comes and kills him, so he dies because of his his hair. And so David now has an opportunity to go back to Israel, he squelches a few other rebellions, And as we look at the next three weeks, as we close down the life of David, we're getting to the tail end of David's monarchy, the tail end of David's kingdom. And David was the greatest king of Israel. But yet, as we've seen, he failed. He was never a perfect king. He never ruled in absolute righteousness. He never ruled in absolute justice. Just like any presidential candidate or new president, they're going to fail. There's no perfect leader. David needed forgiveness. But one thing we remember about David was that God made an everlasting covenant with David. God said to David, out of your house, David, out of your lineage, David, will come an eternal kingdom and there will be a son that will sit on the throne eternally. That was back in 2 Samuel seven sixteen when God said to him, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. Your throne shall be established throughout forever. And then when the angel Gabriel comes to announce the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph, what does the angel announce about Jesus? In Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33, the angel says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the whole house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do I sound loud to you out there? Some of you are like, I'm very loud. I'm hearing a ringing up here so if I, maybe you guys can like turn me down just a little bit. So David was promised that he would have a son on the throne And that would be Jesus Christ who would take up the throne of his father, David. And so as we come to 2 Samuel 23, we are told that these are the last words of King David. Now we know they're not the last official words of King David because he has some other things to say. But really what this is, if you look closely, this is actually a sermon that David preaches about Jesus It's really his last will and testament as king, inspired by the Holy Spirit to preach a message to the nation of Israel and to preach a message to us. And so here's the question for this morning. I think it's the most important question that any of us can ask as we walk into this place. Here's the question. Is Jesus absolute Lord of your life? Is Jesus the absolute Lord of your life? Let's read together. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Quote, here's the beginning of his sermon. The Spirit of the Lord Speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. What in the world does this all have to mean? What does this mean? Why do I call this a sermon by David? It's called a sermon because in verse 1 we find out that it's an oracle of David, an oracle. You trace the word oracle through the Old Testament. It was a prophetic message that one of the prophets gave where they were speaking the word of the Lord. They would come say an oracle from Amos or an oracle from Isaiah, an oracle from Jeremiah. It was the word of God preached that was meant to be listened to. And so David is the one who's preaching this. And he's described as the greatest leader of Israel. It says the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. Remember, he was taken out of the sheepfolds and he was raised on high to be the king of Israel. And not just the king of Israel, but it says there the anointed of the God of of Jacob. The anointed, the Messiah, if you will, the Messiah for his time, the leader. And then it says he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. I like that. He's the sweet psalmist. Almost half of the psalms are written by David. And you go back and you read those psalms and some of those psalms mean so much to us. Psalm 78 70-72 says this, a summary statement about David as king. For he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hand he shepherded them with upright heart and a skillful hand and so david here is under the inspiration of the holy spirit because in verse 2 it says the spirit of the lord speaks by me his word is on my tongue the god of israel has spoken the rock of israel has said to me so david it's very it's very interesting here At the very last words of david he is a king but he's also a preacher and he stands under the inspiration of the holy spirit and he says i'm going to preach a message And his message is all about Jesus. Now you may say, I don't see Jesus in this passage of Scripture. Let me show you Jesus in this passage of Scripture. As a matter of fact, what we see this morning from this passage of Scripture are four powerful assurances about Jesus as the future and coming perfect king. David failed as king. Jesus was the coming king. He never failed. He's the perfect, absolute king. So let's look at these four assurances about Jesus, Number one, you can be assured that Jesus rules justly as sovereign Lord. He rules justly as sovereign Lord. Look at verse 3. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now David never was perfectly ruling justly. David never perfectly ruled in the fear of God, but we know that Jesus will rule. Now, here's something that we have lost in our culture. We have lost in our church culture the lordship of Christ. We've lost it. You see, here's the issue in our culture today. Everybody loves Jesus as Savior, but they don't want to submit to him as Lord. Let me give you an example. If I were to go out to NJC today, or if I were to go over to Walmart, or I were to go over to Columbine Park, or I would to go somewhere in Sterling, and I were to pull people on the street and ask them this question, I would say, do you not want to have all your sins forgiven and live forever in heaven? Most people would say, that sounds pretty good. Who doesn't want their sins forgiven and who doesn't want to live in heaven? Hey, sign me up for that. I'm guilty. I want my sins forgiven. I want heaven. That, that sounds really good. Okay, let me ask them a second question. The same people, the same place, let me ask them this question and see how they answer it this time. Are you willing to submit your entire life to Jesus Christ as absolute Lord and give him the right to dictate to you what you believe and how you live and to surrender control over every area of your life for him to be in charge. Those same people are going to say what? No thank you. I like my sins forgiven, I like heaven, but I don't like this lordship thing. I don't like giving Jesus absolute control of my life. You see, a lot of people like Jesus as Savior, but they don't want to take him as Lord. And you can't divide up Jesus. He is Savior and Lord. Listen to what A.W. Tozer has said. He says this, The Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe in a half-Christ. We take Him for what He is, the anointed Savior and Lord, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He would not be who He is if He saved us and called us and chose us without understanding that He can also control our lives. Oftentimes people will say this, and they're well-meaning. Sometimes you hear pastors or teachers or leaders say this, or or in evangelism you may hear people say this, and and I understand what they're saying and they're well-meaning, but it's a little off. They will say things like this, just make Jesus the Lord of your life. Just make Jesus the Lord of your life. Here's the problem with it. Regardless of what you do with Jesus, he's already Lord. You don't make him the Lord of your life. He already is Lord by the virtue of who he is. You just submit yourself to who he already is as Lord. Listen to what Philippians 2, 10 through 11 say. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to be very clear this morning to you, church family, on what the Lordship of Christ means, because there's a lot of confusion. Let me give you a definition of the Lordship of Christ. It is this. Here's what the Lordship of Christ means. It means that Jesus has sovereign right and control over every area of your life. And that he alone has the authority to tell you both what to believe and how to live. He tells you what you are to, li- to believe, he tells you how you are to live, and he has control over what? Every area of your life. So let's be very practical this morning. If I were to ask you, what are the top three things that most Americans struggle with? I'm sure we'd all come up with some interesting things in this room, but let me give you what I think are the top three lists of most Americans, what they struggle with. Now, you may not struggle with these things, and that's cool, but most Americans probably struggle with these three things, marriage, sex, and money. Marriage, sex, and money. So let's just ask some questions. Let's talk about marriage for a moment. Is Jesus lord over your marriage you know if i were to pull some of you in this room you'd be saying you know what i'm really struggling in my marriage i'm barely keeping it together i'm i'm having a hard time figuring out how to relate to my spouse i am having problems in my marriage and maybe marriage is not your issue but maybe sex is maybe you're thinking to yourself you know what i'm not married yet or I am married, and I'm struggling with sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage. I'm exploring all these things. I'm seeing my, my married friends have um, sexual intimacy, and, I, and I'm not. And so you're tempted to give in to sexual temptation. And maybe that's not your temptation and not your weakness. Maybe finances is. Maybe I were to ask you, hey, how are your finances doing? And you'd say, you know what? We're struggling with our finances. We're barely making ends meet. We're in debt up to our eyeballs. We are struggling. And so most Americans, if you were to say, hey, what are your struggles? I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling with sexuality. I'm struggling with finances. Now, there may be other things you're struggling with, but just for the sake of this morning, let's just say those are the top three. How does lordship work in those three areas of your life? So let's talk about marriage. Is Christ the Lord of your marriage, or are you on the throne of your marriage? Who's the leader of your marriage? Is it you or is it Jesus? Let's talk about sex. Are you in control of your sexual life, or is Jesus in control of your sexual life? Finances. Am I in control of my finances, or is Jesus in control of my finances? You see, oftentimes we compartmentalize the Christian life. And what do I mean by compartmentalize? Here's what I mean. I'm one way at church but the rest of my life I'm something different. I act one way at work, I act one way at home, I act one way with my friends, I act one way at church, and I've got all these different lives that I'm living and none of them are under the lordship of Christ. Lordship means every area of your life comes under his control. And so some of you this morning may just need to repent and you need to confess, hey, you know what, Jesus? You're not the Lord of my marriage. I've been. You need to repent this morning. Some of you may just say, you know what, Jesus, you're not the Lord of my sex life. You need to be, Jesus. Lord, I haven't surrendered my finances to you, Jesus. Would you be the Lord of my finances? Those are practical areas of your life where we sometimes think that Jesus doesn't have lordship. Those are very private things. Nobody touches my money, nobody touches my sex, and I'm never going to talk about my marriage. But Jesus has control over the most intimate details of your life. Number two you can be assured that Jesus brings light and life to sinners. Look at verse 4. He, this future king, this one who's going to rule justly, this king that's going to be perfect, Jesus, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It's this whole idea that this king that's going to come is going to be shining brightly. He's going to be the light of the world. He's going to bring growth. He's going to bring reinvigoration. He's going to bring a maturity. It's going to be like the grass growing. What does the first couple of verses of John chapter 1 tell us about Jesus? John 1, four through 4-5. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Talking about Jesus. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So here's the question. If Jesus is the light, are you following him as the light? Are you following him? See, some of you may be walking through life in the dark. And you're like, well, I'm not in the dark. I I can see exactly where I'm going, Pastor Sean. What I mean by walking in the dark is this. You're charting your own course. You're walking your own way. You're providing your own light. And the irony is that you're really walking in darkness. You're walking your own way. You're not following Jesus as the light. You know, some of you, I've already talked about this on our Wednesday night class. I've talked about it in staff meetings. Some of you read my Sentinel article. Two weeks ago when I was doing my quiet time, this passage in Isaiah just kind of jumped off the page at me and brought some strong conviction about the nature of sin. Isaiah 66.3 says this about sin. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Two things about sin. One is we go our own way. We walk our own way. We choose our own path. And number two, what's even scarier, our soul delights in abominations. You know what that really means? That means that your heart loves what God hates. Sin, walking your own way, means you love what God hates. Do you know what the book of Revelation describes Christians as? There's a lot of definitions of Christians in the book of Revelation but in Revelation 14:4 4, it's there's an interesting definition of a Christian. Revelation 14:4 4 says it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Do you follow Jesus wherever he goes? Is Jesus absolute lord over your life, every area of your life? Are you charting your own course? Are you walking your own way or are you following Jesus? Many of you have heard the poem Invictus by English poet William Ernst Henley. And the final stanza of the poem Invictus really captures this mentality. Listen to the words It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's sin. I'm the captain of my own soul, as opposed to Jesus is the Lord of my life. Are you following the light of the world? If you're not following Jesus, ironically, you're walking in darkness. You may be thinking that you're charting your own past, path and making your own way and, and doing all things in your own power, but the irony is, is it's really darkness. It's darkness. Number three, you can be assured that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy as the eternal Son of God. Look at verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Speaking about the covenant that God made with David. David, you're going to have an eternal throne. You're going to have an eternal dynasty. You're going to have a son who's going to rule as the ultimate king. And we know that's Jesus. But did you notice what David said there? It's an interesting question. Verse 5. Does not my house, what does it say there? Stand so with God. Here's a question for you about lordship. Do you stand with Jesus? Do you stand up for Jesus? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Listen to Jesus' words about standing with him, about being ashamed with, of him. Luke nine twenty three through 26 Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul says to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Here's what Jesus and Paul are saying. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed to stand up for Christian truth. Don't be ashamed to stand up for the gospel. And here's what's going to happen when you do, Paul says, you're going to suffer. The names will be coming at you. You'll be called a bigot. You'll be called narrow-minded. You'll be called everything that this world has to call you, old-fashioned, archaic, closed-minded all these assaults will be coming at you and you'll be tempted to back down and say you know what i'm going to stand up for the world i'm not going to stand up for jesus so the question you have to ask about lordship is who are you standing with are you standing for jesus or are you standing for something else because on the final day there's only one opinion that's going to count every single one of us is going to stand before the king and take an account of what we did with that king and on that final day Your friends, your peers, the media, culture's not gonna care less what you thought. Jesus is the only opinion that counts on that final day. Which brings us to number four. You can be assured of this, that Jesus will bring judgment on those who reject him as king. Look at at verse six. Worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of spear and they are utterly consumed with fire the word worthless there is an interesting hebrew word when we think of worthless we think of oh this is kind of a worthless thing it really means wicked fit for destruction wicked fit to be thrown out into the fire So we need to remember something here. Jesus is glorified in both salvation and judgment. We don't like to talk about the judgment part of this, but the Bible does. Listen to this quote. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. This was penned by liberal theologian Richard Niebuhr in 1937. I think it sums up a lot of what's going on in evangelical Christianity today. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. But I would not tell you the truth if I did not stand up here and say He is the coming judge. And those who do not have faith in Him will face the fire. Listen to what Jesus Himself said. Matthew 13, 41 through 43. These are the words of Jesus Himself. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Do you truly understand? the dire consequences of rejecting Jesus as your king. Do you truly understand that? So what is your view of Jesus? It's interesting that David's last words are a prophetic sermon about this coming king, Jesus, who's going to rule in justice, who's going to be absolute lord, who's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And so the question you've got to wrestle with is, well, how do you view Jesus? There's a lot of weird views of Jesus in our world today. Oh, he's just a good teacher who had some good moral lessons. He had some really cool things to say to people. He really taught us to be nice to one another. Jesus was this really cool guy that walked around and just accepted everybody, never judged anybody, accepted all types of lifestyles. Jesus is a life coach, and he's there to give me my best life now. Jesus is a bank teller at my beck and call to give me whatever I want. Jesus is a divine healer that's going to promise me health, wealth, and prosperity, and then I'm always going to be sickness-free and never have to suffer some dreaded disease or ever have to get cancer. Or maybe Jesus is a therapist who makes me feel better about myself. Back in 2013, Pew Research and Barna both did a research on Americans about their view of God. 80% of Americans believe in God. of Americans claim themselves to be spiritual. But here's my question. What God are you talking about? And what kind of spirituality are you talking about? Because if 80% of the population believes in God, would you not see a fundamental shift in the way our world is? We live in a country of practical atheists. Practical atheists, meaning this, they say they believe in God, but they live as if they don't. Here's the problem with Christians. We have many Christians who say they believe in the lordship of Christ but they live as if they don't. And that's practical atheism. You will never be truly satisfied and experience the joy when you put yourself on the throne of your life as opposed to Jesus being the lord of your life. You may think that you will get joy, you may think that you will get fulfillment, you may think that you will have all your needs met, you may think you have purpose, you may think you will be satisfied with you being in charge but here's the problem, with you in charge it only leads to emptiness it only leads to despair you guys know the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe the Chronicles of Narnia you probably, kids have probably seen the movie because they haven't read the book because reading books is bad hopefully some of you books, kids like I don't like reading, I'll watch the movie some, most of you have probably read it do you remember when Lucy and her, her brother and, brothers and sister first get into Narnia and they go meet Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver and they're in the beaver den? And they start talking about Aslan. And we all know Aslan is the king of Narnia and Aslan represents Jesus. And it's very interesting what Lucy asks Mr. Beaver. What does, what does Lucy ask Mr. Beaver? Is he safe? Is he safe? And what does Mr. Be- beaver say? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus isn't safe. If you want a savior who will never threaten your security, if you want a savior who will never call you to repentance, if you want a savior who will never demand you to take up your cross daily and follow him, if you want a savior who who comes to your every beck and call and will just do whatever you want, if you want that type of savior, you've got a false Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is absolute king of kings and lord of lords. And the question that all of us have to ask this morning is, will we bow before this king? Will we bow before Jesus as the ultimate lord of our life? Will we recognize that he brings light and life to sinners? Will we stand with Jesus? Will we stand up for the gospel? And will we understand the dire consequences of rejecting this king? Is he the absolute Lord of your life? Is he safe? No. I will never stand up here and say, Jesus is safe. But I will say this, he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. So with that in mind, as we prepare to take our Lord's Supper, what better time than this morning than to celebrate Jesus' rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords? The Lord's Supper is a time of celebration. So would you take this opportunity to cherish Jesus, to worship Jesus, to love Jesus, to thank Jesus, to surrender to Jesus, to to bow to Jesus, to worship Jesus as we celebrate his body and his blood being broken for us in the Lord's Supper. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. So let's bow before this good king and surrender our lives to him this morning as we prepare to take... The Lord's Supper you are our Lord and our God you are the rightful king on the throne you are the righteous judge who will come back in power and glory you're the lamb of God who was slain you are the bread of life you are the light of the world you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You're the Prince of Peace. You're our mighty God. You're our Savior and our Lord. You're the Son of David, the rightful King on the throne. And it is to you that we owe all of our allegiance. And Lord Jesus, forgive us when we think of you as a therapist or we think of you as a coach or we think of you as a bank teller or we think of you as just some wimpy version of ourselves that's not worthy of worship. You're a God who threatens our security. You're a God who makes us uncomfortable. You're a God who makes demands upon our lives. You are the king, but you're good. You're so good, Jesus, that you laid down your life on the cross for us. Dying in our place because we could never pay for our own sin. Shedding your blood because we deserve to die. And rising again to conquer sin, death, and the devil. And for that, we say thank you, Jesus. We are your people under your lordship. May we all submit this morning to you. And we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.